the show that deals with everything mental health related uh and i am excited about the show for you today as i have a colleague of mine that um deals with the same sorts of things that i do and likely many of you do before we get too much into that and this is going to be a short and sweet intro because the interview is a little bit longer than uh than what i'm i usually do not very much but I don't want to to uh, to drag on in an intro, uh, but I will say if this is your first time listening to this show, I would recommend going back and listening to the very first episode, the introduction in which I tell you my story and talk all about kind of why I'm doing this podcast and what it means to me, and I think it gives you a better understanding of, of who I am and and what my story and what I'm doing this for. So um, my guest today is... Tiana Allen. She is uh, a fellow teacher that uh, works just around the corner from me. So uh, this should be fun. We've had several conversations about this. I've finally been able to get her on the podcast to talk about her story. And uh, this one should be a good one. So without further ado, I'm going to go ahead and get right into it. And uh, here is my interview with Mrs. Tiana Allen. Being joined now by our special guest here on Wrestling with the Mind, um, a colleague of mine, someone that I uh, have great admiration for, uh, Miss Tiana Allen. Uh, Tiana, thank you very much for joining us today. I know this is uh, uh, something that that is close to your heart as, as well as it is mine. And and um, you know, as I tell all my guests, I think it takes a great amount of courage to come on and, and tell your story. So thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you. I am super excited. We are finally getting together and getting to do this. Yeah, I feel like we have this podcast at school all the time. We just never actually record it, um, which is <laughs> kind of interesting um, that we have these great uh, and, and oftentimes powerful conversations, and, and we don't have any sort of record of them, and, and I feel like they would be beneficial for people to hear. So uh, here we are uh, kind of rapping about um, – for lack of a better term, uh, mental health here on the uh, on the podcast. I completely agree. And I think teachers need to be more aware of other teachers that have this issue because sometimes we get bogged down and feel like, oh, well, it's just our jobs. You know, it's just if we could leave it all at school, you know, it would be fine. But it's not. And anxiety bleeds into all of these different areas of our lives. And so to be able to recognize that and talk about it and get it off of your chest and your mind, I think that's one of the most powerful things that you can do for self-care. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's, you know, I, I tell people all the time, I say, you know, just doing this podcast, I hope it helps people, and that's the main reason I'm doing it, but it helps me as much as it does, you know, the people that are listening to it, because mm -hmm. it allows me an outlet to talk about it, whereas, you know, before I might not have that. I agree. So, I enjoy listening, so I can tell you it helps somebody. <laughs> <laughs> well, good. I, that, that's one. Um, and and if, the, if it's <laughs> only one, that's one, and I'm I'm okay with that. Um, so let's start. With, let's let's get a little bit of background um, on you in in terms of 
Um, I guess you know your 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 struggle personally with mental illness. You know, w- at what point in your life did you realize something was going on? And and you know, at that point, was it something that you said, "Hey, this has been going on a long time," or you know, is is it something that um, you realized, and as you started to look back, you realized it was it was something that had been happening, or did it just kind of pop up one day? Talk, talk to us about that. Give us a little bit of your background. Um, well, I would probably say I've always been an anxious person, um, but I don't think I ever really realized it until I was around, it's probably sophomore year of high school. Um, I went through my first big breakup, and looking back on it, I always feel really dumb saying that, but that's the moment where I realized how powerful um, anxiety was and how much power I had given it in my life. Um, I went through this big breakup, one of my first serious boyfriends, and my I just shut down. I completely just shut down. I didn't want to go to school anymore. I didn't want to go out with my friends anymore. I stopped answering phone calls. Um, that was the time I'm an instant messenger. So, you know, I didn't really get on my messenger anymore, or my MySpace or anything like that. Um, and when I looked back on it, even in the moment as it was happening, like a couple of weeks into the breakup, I was looking back. I realized that it wasn't so much that, oh, this guy, you know, he doesn't want to be with me anymore. Um, I had flashbacks, like very, very intense flashbacks to my mother's death, um, which I'm sure I will get to. But in that moment, I realized I thought that everybody I ever encountered in my life would leave me at some point. And not only would they leave me at some point, but they were going to choose to leave me at some point. Um, And so going to school was incredibly difficult. And I remember one of my first real panic attacks, it was, you know, sophomore year, I was sitting in my biomedical class and I was on a computer. And I just felt like I was under a microscope and everybody in the room was staring at me and everybody at the room was picking apart pieces of me and nobody was looking at me. We were all doing our own work on the computer, but I emailed my teacher and said, you know, I can't get up. I can't get up out of my seat. I can't breathe. I can't move. I cannot get up. And so she came over and she helped me get up out of the seat and she was very discreet. She took me to the science, um, the science hallways, little cubby closet they have with all of their extra stuff, and and I had my panic attack with her, and she talked me through it. Um, she gave me a key to the office. Uh, if I ever felt that way in school, I could just go and sit in the office until I was done and, and go back to my class. And I was very, very thankful for her. But I was always a 4.0 straight A student, and that semester I had all F. Um, so my dad got me into therapy. I got on medication, which I didn't want to take because I felt like it really told everybody there was something wrong with me if I was taking medication, but I got on some medication for it. Um, And that's when I realized it was all just kind of connected back to where my mom had passed away. And I still today think that's where a lot of my anxiety stems from. So so you're specifically anxiety. Do you deal with depression at all, or is it it just anxiety, or do they kind of go hand-in-hand for you? I think they kind of go hand-in-hand for me. There are definitely times where um i think now it's more anxiety but it was depression too it was definitely depression um that specific memory i remember just throughout that whole semester of school i lost probably 25 or 30 pounds and it was just because i didn't want to get up out of bed and eat so that was definitely the depression side of it um i think here as an adult where i have found myself more on power of my happiness and and choosing to know tiana you need to get out of bed this morning you need to because you have 105 kids at school that are waiting for you to come to school and your husband's here and your dogs need to be walked. I've had less of a depression. The anxiety is still there, but 
today, I think it's less depression and more anxiety for sure. No, you know, I can relate to that because I, I tell myself that some mornings too, that, that, hey, there's 125 kids that need you, some of mm-hmm. which deal with the same sorts of things that you deal with, whether you know it or not. And, uh, mm-hmm. and I think that's important. I want to go back to the teacher real quick, if we could. Um, did it yes, seem, did, fantastic. Did it seem like that she understood what was going on, um, you know, or, or had she had experience with that, or was it just, hey, this is a good teacher doing kind of what good teachers do? She definitely had experience with it, but she didn't have to be as kind to me as she was. So I would say it, she had experience with it, and she was also just being a good teacher. When she That first encounter when we went to the science um, office, she sat down with me and she held my hand and she told me that her husband was actually disabled where he couldn't work, but it wasn't a physical disability. It was, it was almost a mental disability and it was panic attacks. He himself struggled with such severe panic attacks that he, he couldn't work. So she was the sole breadwinner from their family on a teacher's salary. And so every day when she left school, she would go home and, and have to help take care of her husband. And I never knew that about her because she was the goofiest teacher I ever had. Always had a smile on her face, always making fun of herself. Um, I had no interest really in biomedical science, but she made it interesting for me. I mean, she was just a fantastic teacher. And I credit her anytime anybody asks me. She's one of the ones that made me choose the career path that I chose. Um, so like I said, I before she told me that, I had absolutely no idea that her home life was not just rainbows and roses from the way that she acted at school. Yeah, and, and I think that's, uh, again, the mark of a good teacher. And, and I guess the reason that mm-hmm. I bring that up is is that I think – there is a, a portion of society, and I'm sure there are some teachers that fit into this as well, that say mental illness is not a real thing, uh, that anxiety and depression isn't real. It's just people need to, to get mm-hmm. over this sort of thing. And, and I'm not pointing out teachers. I don't know any personally that think that. But there's a huge portion of society that thinks that. So the fact that you had a teacher that understood it, I think, it, is a great thing. And I think it's something that everyone that deals with people, not just teachers in general, I think they need to be aware that, hey, it's a real thing, and, and the people that deal with it, um, it's certainly very real to them. I agree. And even in that moment we were having that conversation, I was trying to tell her, you know, I just got broken up with. And she said, honey, this is not about your breakup. It's not just the breakup. So she, I mean, even in that moment, recognized there is more going on to this. And this incident probably brought it to the surface for you, but it's not the whole, it, it's not the whole problem. Yeah, no. A lot of times that there's something that triggers it, but it's it, a lot of times it's it's something that's much deeper. Um, so let's let's get kind of I don't want to say to the heart of it or the root of it, but but I think it's it's <laughs> what you think is is been the major contributor for you, which was the the, the passing of your mother. Um, how old were you when that happened? And and kind of walk us through that if you can walk us through that yeah, and, yeah. and what that was like for you. Um, well, I'm 25 now, and she passed away a month before my 10th birthday. Um, she passed away on March 1st of 2003, and I turned 10 that following month in April. Um, she was a smoker her whole life. She started smoking from the age of 12 on, and she passed away when she was 43. Um, her mother had passed away when she was younger from cancer. And so that kind of led to my mom being in and out of foster care and out of home, um, which led to her smoking. Um, my grandmother was also a smoker, too. And my mom got diagnosed with cancer um, like two or three days before Christmas when I was seven. 
And they didn't tell us, of course, just because it was so close to Christmas, but they only gave her six months and she made it almost three years. Um, so she, she had chemotherapy twice a month. It was lung cancer. They diagnosed it, um, from a tumor they actually found in her back. And then my mom went on a drug trial for a new drug that shrunk the tumor in her lungs down from a grapefruit-sized tumor to, like, a tennis ball-sized tumor, um, which is still a big tumor, but it's not a grapefruit size anymore, I guess. And unfortunately, it just metastasized like my grandmother's cancer did. Um, my mom had lung cancer cells all over her um, ovaries and uterus, and some of them had attached to her liver, so she had a hysterectomy before she passed away. Um, like, my mom was always a small, like, woman stature-wise. I think she probably weighed, like, 120 pounds soaking wet. And so you never really knew that she was sick. Um, she would go to chemotherapy and then come out and, you know, play with us and fly kites with us and stuff like that. Um, but after it metastasized, she did get sick very quickly. Um, so I remember around February of 2003 is when the doctor called my dad in and my mom, and they just said, look, this is not going to work anymore. It's not worth putting your body through anymore, and the cancer is not getting smaller anymore. It's not responding. Um, and so I remember at the time, the house we lived in had a basement, and I went downstairs, and my dad was sitting in the dark in the basement. He was crying. And if you know anything about my dad, my dad's an emotional person, but he's not a crier. He's six seven, six eight. He's a huge guy, and he was just sitting there with his head in his hands. And so I, I just knew, and I asked flat out, you know, Dad, is Mom going to die? And he said yes. And in that moment, I grew up really fast. I knew she had cancer. Um, I knew what death meant. But in that moment, I knew that cancer was going to be the reason my mom died. I didn't have her growing up. Um, and so that was February of 2003. She passed away um, early in the morning of March 1st. And that was actually the day that my parents had decided to renew their wedding vows. And so it was even harder to deal with because we had these plans to have one of these last family gatherings and had she made it a couple of more hours, they would have been able to renew their vows. But unfortunately she didn't wake up that morning. Um, so I was in the fourth grade. I remember missing several weeks of school and going back. Um, and she, she's missed so much. She's missed a lot. I got married this year and she's missed that. Um, my sister had my nephew in 2010 and she missed that. Um, she's missed a lot of stuff. I know that she's been here in spirit. She's definitely sent us signs before, but it's still been tough. It's been really tough. And, and I dealt with a lot of anger when she was sick because she still continued to smoke. And so in my eyes, as a child, she was choosing to continue to do this thing that was hurting her. And so that that correlated to me with she's choosing to leave me. And I know now that that's not what happened, but I think that's really where a lot of my anxiety stems from is that I still kind of see her making that choice to continue to do that harmful thing to herself. And so I just sometimes get in my own head and think that everybody's going to choose to leave me. And as silly as it sounds saying it out loud, that's just, that's how I feel about stuff. Well, and that's the thing about dealing with mental illness in general is we don't really have any control over it um, in, in one respect because it just affects the way our brain works. I mean, there's science behind mm -hmm. that whether people want to accept that or not. And, tr and, I mean, I know you know people as well as I do. There are people that don't want to accept that. Um, I can't tell mm -hmm. you how many times I've had people tell me, hey, just get over it. You know, just suck it up just and go happy. on. Just be happy. Yeah, just be happy. Like, we have that choice uh, sometimes. It, it's not yeah. 
quite that simple. But, um, you know, before you'd gotten the news uh, that your mother was sick, mm-hmm. what were you, you know, were, and, and I know you were younger, but what were you like before that? Did you have those sort, same sorts of worries or, you know, it, did was it strictly, hey, when when my mom got sick and now I think everybody's going to leave me, um, that that your issues started? I think it was probably around the time my mom got sick where it really all started. I've always been kind of a type A personality where I like to be the person in charge. Being late makes me super, super nervous. Even as a kid, I would get nervous if I thought we were going to be late to school. And so I don't know if I could, would contribute that to anxiety or more my personality type. Um, but I do remember my younger sister didn't know my mom was sick at all. And so they, they were always honest with me and told me, Hey, your mom has cancer. And before she got cancer, she was diagnosed with lupus. And so I knew, I knew every time she was going to the doctor, what she was going to the doctor for. I don't know if maybe having to keep that secret made me nervous or having to grow up so fast made me nervous. But I just remember from the time of like seven or eight on just being nervous all the time. Do you think there was a that that had something to do with maybe some sort of responsibility that you felt to your younger sister? Because, and and the reason I say that is, you know, in my family, there's always a lot of conflict. That's just you know, my mm-hmm. family I always describe as is the Connors from Roseanne. You know, we we're always kind of <laughs> fighting with one another, um, and at the end of the day, we love each other and and all that good stuff. But you know, as a kid, it was the same thing and. I always felt like I had to be the glue that held everybody together because even today, you know, my family looks to me to fix things. You know, I'm, I've kind of been the fixer. Mm-hmm. Um, do you feel that, that that sort of thing happened for you with your sister, almost a need to protect her? Or, you know, do you think that that had anything to do with, with the anxiety as well? Um, I would definitely say it was probably a need to protect her. And, Growing up, my family was always close, but I still kind of felt the responsibility to make sure that everybody stuck together, which is silly because I have two older sisters. Um, One of them was 18 when I was born. The other was 16, so there is an age gap, and we don't have the same father. But even after my mom passed away, they still came around all the time and helped take care of us. They were our female role models, Um, but I still felt like well, maybe I don't call this weekend to see if I can go stay at their house. They won't call and check on me. So maybe I should call so they'll come up here and and see everybody. And and that's silly, but that was just what my brain was telling me to do. So there was always a responsibility to my sisters, including my younger sister. And then I always felt like I should do the best that I can do so my dad does not have to worry about me. I always had great grades in school. Um, he got me a car for Christmas when I turned 16, but I turned right around and got a job and, and paid for my gas and paid for part of my insurance. And he never asked me to do those things. I just thought if I can keep the burden off of his shoulders, then he won't have to worry about so much. And that included cooking meals and doing laundry and helping my sister with her homework. And so nobody asked me to, but I took, definitely took on a more adult role, I feel like, as soon as she passed away. What? And then today, oh, I'm sorry, you go ahead. No, 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 I, you know, finish your thought because you might have answered my question already. No. <laughs> well, I was just going to say, today our family isn't as close as they used to be, and that's for several reasons. But I still feel like today I'm the glue of the family. Like, oh, don't forget it's so-and-so's birthday or 
you know, don't forget my nephew has a football game, you know, come out if you can. I'm always trying to find reasons for us to get together. And it makes me nervous when it doesn't happen. But I just feel like it's still my responsibility to make sure everybody comes together and is in the same room for at least one day out of the year if I can make it happen. You know, Alan, when when uh, you say these things, and I remember when I told you about this podcast and you listened to it and you looked at me and you said, we have a lot of similarities in our stories. And, and as I mm-hmm. hear yours more, I, I understand that because they, they are they do parallel each other in some ways. Um, you, you mentioned, you know, kind of being that taking that burden off of your dad afterwards. Uh, in general, do you feel like you know, you are a burden to people because I know I do. I, I don't know why. And, uh, you know, it, and, and when I ask these questions, I'm certainly not trying to predict you. I just know that, that these are certain <laughs> characteristics. You know, I know I always feel like I'm not worth it. I'm not, you know, I, mm-hmm. I, I'm a burden on people that people just don't care. And a lot of times it's not the case, but, but that's where my mind takes me. Is it a similar situation for you? And do you think that's what maybe contributed um, to you taking it on yourself to try to bring the family together and take the burden off of your dad, you know, even it, though he didn't ask for it. Um, do you think that that is part of your personality as well? I definitely would say so. As a kid, I didn't feel so much that way just because I really did try my hardest to always keep myself busy so he wouldn't have to worry about me. But as an adult, um, especially since I just moved home from Lexington back to Bowling Green, I feel a little bit like a burden. Um, you know, my dad is like three houses down, and and he's an adult. I mean, he has a job, and there's craziness going on in his household. I'm an adult, and I have a job, and we never see each other. So part of my brain goes to, well, it's because he doesn't want to see you. I don't know that that's not true, but that's just where my brain goes sometimes. I definitely feel that way um, with my husband a lot more, and he tells me every time I feel that way how silly I'm being. Um, and especially since, you know, my I just had back surgery. I've been down for the surgery plus a month or so, so I'd say about a month and a half. And my anxiety definitely took over at that point. I just felt like I was a burden to everybody. I physically couldn't do anything for myself which just made my anxiety skyrocket that whole time. So it's been a while having to pull myself out of that mentality to get back in the groove of things. Yeah, I'll tell this story. Um, and and I kind of gathered that uh, while you were uh, away from your surgery. For those that don't know, um, uh, Tiana and I work at the same school. We literally work around the hall from each other. And uh, when you were out, you know, I made sure to check on you every day because I know what that's like, and I know kind of what that that burden feels like for for you or for a person that deals with processes things the way that you do. But I remember you asked me one time uh, during that time to make copies for you for your class, and like I think you acted like you'd asked me to move mountains and and were afraid to ask. <laughs> and I was like, no, it's fine. Like I'm. I can go make copies. It's not that big a deal. I'll get them, you know, I'll get you taken care of. Um, whether your sub actually did them the way they were, the, the instructions yeah. were supposed to or not <laughs> is another story, but I did get them there. But it wasn't a problem to me because, and and here's where the trans, here's where the, the, the professional radio guy comes out here. Here's the transition. Um, <laughs> that, you know, for me personally, like I'm a helper. Like I want to help people. I want to do because that makes that helps validate me as as you know being being needed um mm-hmm. you know do you do you have those same sorts of hey i'm a helper i'm gonna do whatever i can 
Um, and how does does doing those sorts of things help you deal with your anxiety? I definitely would consider myself a helper. So I spread myself so thin so many times. And I just can't help it. I like it, it's not that I like being told, "Oh, thank you. I so appreciate you." It's just the act of doing something for somebody else that makes me feel better. Um, like I would, I I so appreciate you making those copies. It's so silly that you brought it up. <laughs> I really did appreciate it. Um, like I have a young lady in one of my classes who's struggling with a couple of things, including things outside of school and inside of school. And I have another young lady in another class who is itching to tutor somebody. And so here I am emailing all of these parents, trying to coordinate a tutoring, you know, situation and get together. And it's not even for my content area. <laughs> and so that you bring up the fact that do you need to help people? Yes, I definitely need to help people. And that's just a recent example. So I have two young ladies who will be staying after school with me, tutoring each other in biology, and I teach English. I will be no help to them whatsoever in biology. But I just feel like I have helped them out by getting them together and getting them in the same room. Well, yeah, I was going to say that the help oh, comes sorry. from I was going to say the help comes from putting putting them together. I mean, that that was the help. Yeah. It sounds like one of those students uh, has got biology down fairly well if they're wanting to tutor. Um yes. but but what you've done is you've facilitated that for them. Mhm. So, uh, so nice. Tell me, you know, as as we're we're kind of bouncing around here, but that's the way I like to do this podcast because I like to keep people on their toes. I feel like it's our afternoon session. It, well, once we, yeah, once we get done complaining about whatever has <laughs> happened that day, yeah, that's it's kind of the way it works. Um, you know, to walk me through what high school was like for you, especially after you had that first real major panic attack. You know what what was high school like for you? How did you deal with it? Um, you know, you knew you were struggling with something and you, you'd mentioned you'd gotten on medicine, which I want to touch on later as well. Um, but you know, talk, walk me through what high school was like for you at that point. Um, after you had kind of realized, Hey, there's something not right. I think people either really love high school or really hate high school. And I loved high school. Um, I was in marching band and concert band. So I was always busy after school doing something, um, I was in all these different clubs at school, which looking back on now, you would think, oh, she had all of these friends. I had, I had friends, like walking down the hallway, people would say, hey, Tia, and I would, you know, say hey to other people. But I really only had a, a very, very small circle of friends. And looking back, <laughs> I would only call one or two of that small circle truly friends. Um, I just like to surround myself with people. And whether or not we end up having a super close relationship or not, I just genuinely like being with people. Um, my English classes especially were my favorite. High school was always this relief for me, I would say, where as soon as I walked through those doors, I didn't have to worry about whether or not my sister had done her homework or whether or not my dad would come home to a clean kitchen or whether or not the laundry would be done. I just got to be Tana and be the age I was supposed to be and focus on my schoolwork. And so I took school seriously. I always did my work. I always asked for extra work. But I, I always tried to be involved with something at school, too, just so I could stay a little longer and have something to take my mind off of everything that was going on outside of the building. Well, that's interesting because, you know, that you found a place where you could essentially be free. And, and I don't know mm -hmm. that that's the case for everybody. 
Um, and, and that's something I think even you would say you're fortunate in, in finding that because, you know, the one thing that I've learned with mental illness, specifically anxiety and depression, and that's what I speak to, you know, from a, I don't want to say an expert standpoint, but just as someone who deals with it, that Mm -hmm. keeping yourself busy and not letting your mind wander is one of the greatest things you can do for, for mental illness. And, And it doesn't have to be academic. I mean, I play video games to keep my mind off of it sometimes. So um, yeah, it, but, yeah, people do. But it sounds like you were fortunate early on to find something, almost to give yourself a purpose, but also to, to mm-hmm. a place where you could be free. I always enjoyed reading. I was, I mean, I've, I, I have, from the age of three on, there are photos of me with always a book in my hand. And I think when I took AP language and AP literature in high school, I, I mean, I enjoyed those classes. Obviously, I'm an English teacher today, but I truly just engrossed myself with the novels that we were reading. Like when we read Bordering Heights, I was there in the moor with Heathcliff and Catherine. When we read um, The Great Gatsby, I was at the party. Like I truly, truly imagined myself with these characters in the novels. And I've always done that with books. And so I think that was just another escape for me. And then going to school was like, oh, you mean I really have an hour I can sit here and read and not be me? That's awesome. I'm going to take advantage of it. And so I think that's part of the reason why I chose English specifically, because kids today don't really enjoy reading. But if I can get them to read and see themselves in these books for a little bit, maybe that's giving them a well-needed break that they haven't told anybody they need. You know, that I feel like you should tell your students that from time to time, that, that that's, <laughs> that's how you got into reading. Because um, I, I do think that, that students have the capability of doing that. I just think we live in a different time where they don't mm-hmm. they don't always want to uh, but that's always kind of the way that I read uh, although I read much slower and did not read as much because I mm-hmm. I'm one of those I have to read every word on the page if I don't then I've, mm-hmm. I've not done it justice um, but I would in my mind like envision it as if it were on my television screen um, and, yes. and that to me was was what made you know some parts of reading fun um, but I always got discouraged when I would be on chapter two and everyone else is on like chapter seven because, yeah. you know, I, I read slower than everybody else. But um, but that's that's beside the point. That's that's uh, for for Seth's issues on another day. <laughs> <laughs> so um, after high school, um, you went to UK. Is that correct? I did. Um, so. Was this the first time that you had kind of been out on your own, away from family, and, and you know, how did you deal with that? Um, it was one of the first times for an extended period of time that I was on my own. Um, I actually was lucky enough to go to Europe right before I started high school my freshman year, and the first couple of days were really, really hard for me, just not being there with my dad and my little sister. Um, and then going to college was the same way. It took me a while to adjust. And then after I adjusted and found my groove, I was okay. But that's – I'm really glad you brought up college. I don't even know why I hadn't brought that up yet. But that's – I really struggled with depression my first couple of years in college. Um, and I don't even – I don't know what brought that that bout on that time. I don't know if it was being farther away. I don't know if it was being challenged at a level I wasn't used to. But there were several times in college I remember, you know, you could have eight skips before you fill the course. Now it has seven. 
or, you know, I'm an English major taking all of his English courses and I couldn't make myself crack open a book, even though I loved reading. And there were times I remember sitting in the front of the room crying throughout an entire lecture for absolutely no reason. Um, so there were several times in high school or college, excuse me, that I, I struggled very much so with my anxiety and depression. Um, undergrad was hard. And I took a year off between my undergraduate degree and my master's degree. And that break wasn't by choice. Um, at UK, you have to have a 4.0 in the GRE for one of the categories, and I had a 3.5. And I couldn't retest for a couple of weeks, and I missed the application window. And so that was really hard on me. It was the first time I had ever really failed anything. That, and I wasn't even failing. It's not like I had a 2 and I needed a 4. I was like five-tenths away from what I needed. Um, but that was really hard, really, really hard. I was hard on myself. I was down for a while. But looking back, I think that was a, a higher power telling me I needed a break for a little bit. It was a much-needed break. And I did a lot better in my graduate program than I would have, I think, had I went straight from undergrad to graduate stuff. Well, you know, you mentioned being hard on yourself. And, and you know, I think that's always a, a big deal with people that struggle with mental illness is we mm -hmm. are our own worst critics. Um, yes. and, and it doesn't matter – it doesn't matter in what we're, we're talking about or what we're doing or how important or, or unimportant it is. Um, did you ever get the, the sense of feeling, I don't know, you know, worthless or not, not good enough or, you know, all those things? Because, you know, I, and, and I, I ask this because I myself have felt that many times um, where you feel like, oh, you know, you failed at something and, um, and, and you feel like you're not worth it. You feel like you're worthless. You feel like oh, my God, you know, what am I even doing uh, because I'm not good enough? You know, did did those sort of feelings creep in on you uh, during that time, whether it was, you know, around the time when you missed that application or just as you were dealing with your undergrad and, and, and kind of fighting these battles? Um, it was definitely feelings of I'm not good enough, you know, why am I here? And the why am I here was why am I here at college studying what I'm studying and why am I here in general, on earth. Um, and I had suicidal thoughts in high school. I had them in college as well. And it was never, I'm going to do this to myself or I'm going to do that to myself. It was more, if I'm walking across the street and a car comes running towards me, I'm not going to run out of the way. I'm not going to try that hard to get out of this car's way. Um, there were times driving back and forth between Bowling Green and Lexington where I would visit my family and I was feeling down on myself, and I, would thought, I, I thought if I were to run into this barrier, would it look like an accident? And it was never anything that I seriously wanted to do to myself. Um, there were just times where I thought, I don't know why I deserve to be existing right now, and I don't think I want to be existing anymore. And I'm really glad that I never you know, bought into that stuff that my mind was telling me, because I definitely think I'm here for a purpose now. Sometimes my purpose is a little cloudier than other days, and I still have those feelings where I'm unworthy, but I can talk myself out of it, whereas in college, I, I couldn't bring myself out of those points. Well, what advice would you give to somebody who is, you know, seriously thinking about um, those sorts of thoughts that, you know, whereas you weren't, you were thinking about them, and it sounds like more of a what-if type scenario, but mm -hmm. for, for people that are seriously thinking about that, um, what advice or what would you say to them? 
there was one, there were a couple of things I would say. There was one time in high school before I asked anybody for help. Um, I had my panic attack and my science teacher knew that I was having anxiety attacks, but nobody really knew that I wasn't eating and I wasn't sleeping. And I didn't want to, I didn't want to be anymore. And there was a time where I just sat on the edge of my tub with a razor and I, and I never, I never brought it to my wrist or any other part of my body, but I was sitting there and I started crying because I thought, who's going to find me? Like, is my dad going to find me after having to bury his wife? Is my little sister going to find me after having to bury her mother? That is so unfair to who's going to find me. And that talked me out of it in that moment. And that's kind of something that I've always thought about where if any of my what-if situations happen, what would happen to my family? We've already experienced such a great loss. You know, my dad's parents have already passed away, one from a heart condition, one from cancer. Um, we lost my grandmother to cancer. We lost my other grandmother to cancer. Um, we've experienced such loss already that I don't think it would be fair to purposely make my family go through that again, to, to, to say, hey, I think you all deserve to have more pain. And so that's something I would tell people to consider is um, how would the people around you, whether it's your family or your friends or, or anybody in your life, how would they feel if they woke up one day and you were gone? and that you chose to make that decision. Because whereas my mom didn't choose to get cancer, I would have chosen to leave. And that's a real choice. Um, another thing that I've actually seen going around on Facebook here recently that has spoken volumes to me is that um, it's just a bad day. It's not a bad life. And maybe you have a couple of bad days strung together, but I promise there's a light at the end of the tunnel, and it's not a light at the end of the tunnel telling you that you don't need to be on earth. It's whatever is happening to you is happening and it's going to end. You don't deserve to not experience all the beauty of life just because you're having a rough time. It will end. It may not feel like it in a moment, but it will end. Somebody needs you here, even if you don't feel like that's true. Somebody does need you. Yeah, I, I agree completely. I, I don't know that I could have, have put that any better myself. I, I think that, that those are, you know, and – and I guess you and I are people that, that can speak to that in one sense that, you know, there have been times when we felt like nobody needed us, but then, you know, as we get into this career that we've chosen, we realize there's a lot of people mm -hmm. that need us. Um, and, and for us, and, and not everybody has that benefit, but for us it's on a daily basis. And, um, mm -hmm. and, and to me that's very powerful that, that I get to go and, and do a job where I get to be somebody that helps kids you know, that, that sometimes don't even know they need it, but that mm -hmm. you're still there and, and, you know, that you are needed. And, and that's a, again, like I said, a very powerful feeling. And even on the flip side, like before you even said from a teacher's standpoint, like my kids need me, I hope my kids know that I need them. Like I truly Absolutely. miss each and every one of them while I was out. Um, and while I was student teaching, I had a student get into a, a fairly serious car accident and I was really upset about it because I didn't know if he was going to be able to walk again. You know, he was alive, but I didn't know what his future was going to look like. And I just kept thinking, I will never be able to handle if I lose a student. And so my kids need to know that I am there for them. You know, they may need me, but I also really need all of them. Even if I, even if days go by where I don't have a genuine conversation or a genuine moment with them, because we have so many kids in our classes, 
I would still be absolutely devastated if I lost any of them. No, I, I'm with you 100. percent You know, I I I didn't have any students um, when I student taught to have any sort of serious accident, but I did have one that um, I, I enjoyed seeing every day. I enjoyed talking to him every day. And he just comes up to me one day and says, hey, today's my last day. And and he took a, an alternative path. But, you know, it made me sad because I was like, I didn't even get yeah. to prepare for this. <laughs> you know, I I, well, you know, <laughs> I mean, I know he was okay. And, and actually I get to, uh, um, in coaching, I get to coach one of his or a couple of his, his little brothers. Um, and oh, I get to, awesome. yeah, and I get to see him and, and, and kind of catch up with him from time to time. But, um, but yeah, no, I, I'm with you. I mean, th- they do as much for they do more for us, I think, than than we do for them, and and that's that's the rewarding part. Um, speaking of relationships, you know, mm-hmm. we're we're talking about relationships with with students and and things of that nature. But what about uh, you know, talk me through relationships for you. You know, I know that that the one major breakup kind of was a trigger um, for something that was going on 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 a greater level but what were relationships like for you um through high school and through college um relationships were kind of hard just because I was always that clingy person and I and looking back on it now I know why I was clingy it was because I was afraid they would leave but um it was just it was just hard it was you know things would go good for a while like they normally do and then when things would take a turn because you're 16 years old and you're not with your soulmate um, I, I had a really hard time dealing with, with that. Um, and not every breakup would, you know, spiral me into this great depression, but I would, I would feel bad for a couple of weeks and I would just think, you know, well, well it's, you know, damn, it's happening again, you know, but they chose to leave me again. Um, in college, I ended up with people that I shouldn't have been with because I felt alone and, and didn't want to feel alone anymore. So I thought that relationship would fix it and it never did, which made me feel worse. Um, but nobody... Nobody understood what I was going through. And that's fine because while I'm okay with having anxiety and depression, I wouldn't wish it upon anybody. It was just hard for me to be able to explain myself and why I was acting the way I was acting because they didn't understand it. Um, and my husband, even, it, it took Garrett a long time to understand why I was feeling the things I was feeling. And, and we still have, you know, not arguments, but there are moments where he, he doesn't understand why I'm anxious. Or he thinks that I'm being silly and I shouldn't be anxious about what I'm being anxious about. And that's just because he himself doesn't live with that every day. He does with me, but he doesn't himself internally feel what I'm feeling at moments. Um, Garrett is the kind of person that will, will hold it all in and doesn't ever explode, but he internalizes things and deals, deals with it himself. Where I feel myself shutting down, and so I make myself talk about it to somebody so I'm not shutting down. And we're different that way. Sometimes it's for the better. Sometimes it's for the worse. Um, but he's the first person outside of my family that has ever tried to understand what I'm going through and ever, ever been helpful in what I'm going through, which is probably one of the main reasons why we're together now and married. Yeah, I was going to say, you know, that's, that's, you know, it has to be difficult on him. And, you know, my wife the same way is, is trying to understand living with somebody and, and being with someone that you can't understand, you know, it, it, as, mm-hmm. as weird as that sounds, you know, you can't always, they can't understand what we deal with inside or what we deal with mentally. Um, but, but like you, you know, I've found someone who, who has tried her, her hardest to figure that out or, or at least know the signs of it and, and has learned, okay, 
when this when X happens, I need to do Y, you know, or, mm-hmm. or you know, etc. Um, and what what was the first time that he experienced it, and what was his reaction, and 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 how did he deal with that? Oh man, I can't remember the very first time, just because we were friends for so long before we officially started dating. But there were many times where he would have to talk me off of the ledge of something. And I could tell when his eyes, you know, he, he was thinking this is kind of stupid, but he was still there talking me off the ledge of things. Um, I mean, more recently, if it's okay if I talk about a more recent experience. Absolutely. Um, this past week, we had a department meeting, and and I just left feeling like the biggest failure as a teacher that I've ever felt. Like, we were talking about something to do with English that I didn't know. And it was something that I have to teach before the end of this quarter, or I'm supposed to teach before the end of this quarter. Um, and I was thinking, I haven't been at school in a month. I've had a month away from my kids. Now I'm back, and I have no idea what I'm doing. And I can't drive. I can't list things just yet because of the surgery. So Garrett came to pick me up. And we were in the elevator, and I was trying not to look at him. And I was just tearing up, and he asked me what was wrong. And I didn't want to tell him because I didn't want him to think I was being stupid. And five years ago, he probably would have said, okay, and not pushed me to talk to him about it. But he knows now that if I'm upset about something, I I have to talk about it. And so he just kept asking me. And it wasn't like, I know something's wrong. What's wrong with you? He was just telling me, you've got to talk to me. You've got to talk to me. You've got to talk to me. And he wasn't pushy about it. We got in the car, and he kept telling me, you need to talk about it. And so I did. I told him that I felt like a failure. I told him I felt like I had no idea what I was doing. And I know that teachers feel that way all the time, especially first-year teachers. But I feel like for, for people I, who have anxiety. I feel that way every day, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> I knew that, too. But that day was particularly hard. I just kept thinking, you know, I'm supposed to be an English teacher with two degrees. and I don't know what adverbial phrases look like. like and I still don't. I should be working. That's, that's my Thanksgiving project. <laughs> but he just told me it was silly and told me that, I know what I'm doing. And sometimes him telling me I'm silly upsets me in the moment. But looking back on it now, it was silly. I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't have two degrees if I didn't know what I was doing. And I know that Mr. King would not have hired me if he felt like I didn't know what I was doing. In my interview, he said we only hire rock stars. And when he offered me the job, he said, I think you're a rock star, and I want you to work at our school. And so I don't think there should ever be a time where I feel totally clueless that my anxiety says otherwise. And in that moment, my husband tossed me off the edge of the cliff. At first, I was upset at him for telling me I shouldn't feel that way. But he was right. I shouldn't have thought that way. Well, I'll say this. Um, our principal thought you were a rock star. I know you're a rock star. <laughs> Thank you. Just from working around you and, and hearing how students talk about you, I think that's the biggest indicator um, is what they're saying when you're not around. Um, as opposed to when you are, when they are, uh, when you are around, I'll, I'll get it out there in, in just a minute. Um, as, as we start to wind up here, one of the things that I, I would be remiss if I didn't mention is how you handle attention because you have had um, something happen to you that garnered you lots of attention, uh, more mm-hmm. than most you know people deal with at all. Uh, talk about what it was that, that got you the sort of attention that you got nationally and how you dealt with that. Because I imagine um, you were dealing with more people and, and uh, you know, more um, attention than maybe you've ever dealt with. Well, I have always absolutely hated being the center of attention. I hate having people look at me. 
I hate public speaking. Um, so it's, it's really funny to me that I've chosen the career path that I've chosen and for eight hours a day, I stand in for the people and talk. Um, and I still kind of make fun of myself in the classroom where, you know, all right, everybody all eyes on me, you know, even though I hate it. Um, I've always, I've also always been a writer. And so there was a day where I was at Myra in Lexington and there was a mom who was trying to explain to her daughter how to shave her legs. And it was really trivial. I only heard part of the conversation as I was picking up some shaving cream or something in that same aisle. But it reminded me of when my dad had to teach me how to shave. Um, and it was right after my mom passed away. It was probably one of the first things that he had to do that people would consider, you know, oh, you're having to teach your daughter how to do something girly. But I was being picked on at school because I didn't shave my legs. And first of all, who shaves their legs in the fourth grade? <laughs> but I was made fun of for not doing that. And so I came to him with one of his razors, and I asked him how to teach me to shave my legs. And for a second, he was kind of like, you know, why me? You know, what am I supposed to say? I could see it all over his face. But it was only a split second. He turned off the TV. He got it out of his recliner. He put me on the counter in the bathroom, and he taught me how to shave. And I for whatever reasons, wanted to put that on Facebook. My dad is a, the kind of person who will never brag on himself. He never gives himself credit that he has raised, you know, practically four girls. You know, my older sisters were, were grown when, when my mom passed away, but he definitely helped them grieve, and he raised my younger sister and myself by himself. Um, and so I put on Facebook, you know, today I admire this happened. It reminded me of this. You know, I just want to give my dad a shout out, a public shout out, because he deserves people to know that he didn't ever brush us off on a female in our lives, that he taught us these things. Um, and one of my favorite things that I wrote was that I just wanted to tell my dad, thank you for never being too much of a man to be my mom. Because in that moment, it could have been, it would have been easier for him to call my sisters or call my aunt or call our neighbor who her daughter and I were very close in age and had the classes together. Anybody, he could have called anybody in that moment to teach me how to shave. He did it himself. Um, and so I followed a Facebook page called Love What Matters that shares just really heartfelt stories or, or funny little videos. They're just trying to put some good things on Facebook to break up your, your news feed. And I never, ever thought that they would post my story. But I woke up the next morning to my best, best, best friend, and she texted me and said, you need to go Google yourself. And so I did, and the Facebook post on Love What Matters within eight hours had been shared almost 15,000 times. Um, and it proceeded to be shared, I think it was 28 to 30,000 times on their page um, with more reactions, so a total of 40,000 reactions, like people loving it and ha-haing it and stuff like that. Um, People Magazine interviewed me. The Huffington Post interviewed me. It was on Southern Living's website, Pop Sugar's website. I ended up making it to India, for, of all places. It was translated um, there. It was in Swedish. It was, it was translated into five or six languages total. Um, but one of the best parts was that in the original post, in the comment section, people were talking about, yeah, I was raised by a single father, too, but he did this. And my single father did this. And it was, I mean, it was a nice moment where dads were given recognition. And I said this in my interviews with magazines, and not, not at all to talk bad about single mothers. But what do you think single parent? I think the first thing that comes to mind for a lot of people are just single mothers. 
and single fathers don't kind of don't get the recognition they deserve. Single parents in general never get the recognition they deserve, having to play both roles of, with with one or, or multiple children. Um, but it was just really nice to see all these different people from around the world praising their dads for something that their dads probably do without even thinking about. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and you know, I, I agree with that 100%. I was raised by a single parent. I mean, it was was my mother, but you know, my mother had to be my father too. You know, my mother taught me to Mm -hmm. shave. So it was, you know, it kind of works the the same way, just in reverse. Um, Mm -hmm. how did you deal with that attention? Because I, you know, I know you, you have said you're not the person that wants the attention, but clearly when, when you're shared that many times and that many reactions and, and it gets sent, you know, all around the world, um, you're going to get some attention and people are going to reach out to you personally, I would imagine. Um, mm-hmm. And I have to imagine that that was overwhelming, but, but, you know, how did you process that and, and, and how did you deal with it? It was overwhelming, but it was nice. Um, when people personally messaged my Facebook, I didn't respond, which might make me a really bad person, but it was just, a lot of them were men from other different parts of the world, and I was just like, um, thank you for reading my story, but I don't think I want to open a conversation with you. Um, the magazine stuff was weird. It was weird, but it was nice. Um, I've always I've always been a writer. I've always thought to myself, maybe one day I'll write a book, but you know, who's going to care about what I have to say? And, and in that moment, it was like, you know, clearly a lot of people think that I have something to say. There are people in the comments telling me that I should write a book about growing up with a single dad. Um, my husband Garrett has always told me, you know, not that he doesn't think I should be a teacher, but he always tells me, I think you need to take a break from everything that you're doing and write, write a book or write, write a short story or write something. Um, and when all of it started happening, he was actually listening to me do a phone interview and I looked up and he was, he was cheering up and he said, you were just going to touch so many people through this. Um, and so I guess it was the attention that I received closer to home that meant the most to me. And it didn't make me feel uncomfortable. It just, it just, it was validation. Um, and also that I had never been validated before in my life, but it was just this overwhelming feeling to think that many people think I have something to say. And not only do they think I have something to say, they like what I have to say. Um, so it was very, very, very overwhelming, but it was a nice overwhelming. Yeah, I have to imagine. I, I've never um had anything go viral um when i get people to watch my wrestling matches it's it's a a big deal for me (laughs) um so uh one of the as we wrap up here a couple things i want to ask you before we we send it on home um one of the things that i preach is self-care um is taking care Mm -hmm. of yourself and doing things you know and that's part of the reason why this podcast has been a little more inconsistent than i would like it to be is because i've had to take (laughs) care of myself um as you know with the job that we do um, there are some very trying days and some things that we have to do um that that kind of make you crazy a little bit um so what mm-hmm. do you do uh, to you know exhibit self-care what do you do that, uh, that that helps you make it through and what advice would you have for people in in terms of self-care i would first and foremost tell people to never be ashamed of taking time for yourself and anything that you do for yourself is self-care. Um, I used to run, and I and I hate that I can't run anymore just because of my injury. I'm hoping that here soon I'll be released to, to go run again. And, and I don't want to get some of my weight off so I feel better about myself, but to be able to clear my head. Um, I used to read all the time for self-care, but I have less time for that now. Um, 
I really enjoy taking photos. And so I'll take photos for other people or I'll just go outside with my camera and take photos and mess around with editing. Um, that makes me feel a little better. I'm a big Netflix junkie too. And at first I was telling myself, don't say that you watch Netflix all the time to take care of yourself, Tiana, because I don't want to seem like the kind of person who just zones out on the couch. But I've watched The Office probably four or five times through, and I watch at least two episodes of The Office every day. Um, and it's just nice to be able to shut my brain off because I know what they're going to – I know all the episodes and just laugh at something silly. Um, and that may seem like a very trivial thing to do for yourself, but giving yourself time to shut your brain off and laugh is self-care. We don't have enough time to laugh during the day. And, and to find a moment or two where you can just turn your brain off and rest is nice. Um, no, I'm with you there. Something I'll, I'll, I do for myself. Oh, I'm sorry. I, didn't mean to I was going to say the, the, the Netflix, I, I don't think is a bad thing at all. You know, I, I just recently started rewatching Dexter because I relate. Oh, that's another one we watched. Yeah, <laughs> I, I relate so much to the character. Not that I'm a serial killer. I don't want to throw that out there. <laughs> that's not the case. But someone who struggles with emotions. Um, yeah. and, and I relate to that because sometimes I struggle with why people feel the way they feel or, wow, why can this person be happy and I can't? Um, mm-hmm. so, so no, I, I'm with you there. I think sometimes just like a book, you can get immersed in a TV show because you relate to Absolutely. the characters so much. I agree. Well, I, I cut you off there. I didn't mean to. So what are some no, other things no. that you do for, for self-care? I mean, I, I still write a little bit, um, which I, again, just like reading, I feel like I don't have enough time to just try to balance, you know, first year teaching and, and, and still reading and writing, but for pleasure instead of for school. And that's been a little difficult. Um, and then moving home at first I thought would be really hard for me, but my sisters are down here. So it's nice for them to call me on a Saturday and say, Hey, you know, we're going to go walk around Target. Do you want to come? I mean, that's spending time with my family has helped a lot too. That that's awesome. It's always nice to to reconnect like that, uh, for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, well, before we let you go, one thing I always like to let people do is: um, Do you have any way that if someone's listening to this and they would like to reach out to you because they relate to your story or they have questions um, about something you deal with that maybe they deal with, is there any way that they could contact you that you would be comfortable with? Um, I am on Twitter. I can't remember my Twitter handle right now. We'll we'll, we'll get it and put it in the we'll we'll get it in the um I'll get it from you before we post the episode and we'll put it in the uh, the bio. Yeah. Um and then I'm on Facebook too. It's just it's Tiana Allen. Um T I A N A A L L E N. I have no problem messaging people on Facebook with stuff like that. Um I think if you're thinking about reaching out to anybody, do do the reaching out because that's that's what I had to do. It was it, they were two teachers in high school I reached out to and they they literally saved me. Um, and not that I'm saying I have capability of saving anybody, but if anybody has been listening to this and and feels like she knows what I'm going through, I, I have no problem connecting with somebody and, and 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 helping them find the help that they need. We need each other. It's it's anxiety and depression are a club that nobody really wants to belong to, but we all do and. And if it unites us for something that we all have experienced, then, then we're in it together for the better or for the worse. Well, a- absolutely. Well, Tiana, I want to thank you very much for, for joining us here on Wrestling With The Mind. Uh, I'm looking forward to this episode, and uh, and, and hopefully, you know, it, it reaches, um, you know, somebody. 
um, that that is in need that that we could potentially help. Anything else you want to add before we let you go? I just really appreciate you wanting me to be on here, and I'm so glad that you kept this up because somebody out there is listening. They told they are, and it's helping them because we all feel alone. And to know that we're not alone is is literally a lifesaver. All right. Well, thank you very much. Uh, and, uh, you know, maybe we'll have you on again or, or, or a co-host situation as I'm running low on guests right now. <laughs> so, um, it, you know, I, I, I like my voice. I think I have a nice voice. But if I'm the only voice you're hearing, you're probably going to get tired of it after a while. So um, well, anything I can do to help, I'd be happy to help. <laughs> absolutely. Well, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. What a great interview that was with Tiana Allen. Uh, make sure you reach out to Tiana and tell her uh, what you thought about the interview. Hopefully you enjoyed it or related to it, uh, and maybe it helped you a little bit. Speaking of help, uh, you can always reach out to us if you just want to say hello, want to share your story, or just say, hey, we're listening and it is helping. You can email us at wrestlingwiththemind at gmail.com or wrestlingwiththemind on Facebook and WrestleMindPod. On Twitter, that's the ways that you can reach out to us. That gets directly to me. Uh, this is sort of a one-man show. I do have somebody that kind of uploads the episodes for me, but all the editing and social media, etc., cetera, uh, that is me. So uh, that's going to do it for us today. Hopefully we will have another episode for you. Running a little bit low on guests. I'm uh, going to have my wife on soon to talk about what it's like living with someone with mental illness when you do not. So uh, stay tuned for that. That should be coming up next Monday. Uh, so I'm going to say so long, wrap this episode up. And as always, remember, you may not be okay, and that's okay. Thanks for listening.